0: Chapter 43 of Adam Bede. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Belinda Brown of Indianapolis, Indiana. Adam Bede by George Eliot. The verdict The place fitted up that day as a court of justice was a grand old hall now destroyed by fire. The midday light that fell on the close pavement of human heads was shed through a line of high-pointed windows, variegated with the mellow tints of old painted glass. Grim dusty armor hung in high relief in front of the dark oaken gallery, at the farther end, and under the broad arch of the great mullion windows opposite was spread a curtain of old tapestry, covered with dim melancholy figures, like a dozing, indistinct dream of the past. It was a place that, through the rest of the year, was haunted with the shadowy memories of old kings and queens, unhappy, discrowned, imprisoned. But to-day all those shadows had fled, and not a soul in the vast hall felt the presence of any but a living sorrow which was quivering in warm hearts. But that sorrow seemed to have made itself feebly felt hitherto, now when adam Bede's tall figure was suddenly seen being ushered to the side of the prisoner's dock in the broad sunlight of the great hall among the sleek-shaven faces of other men the marks of suffering in his face were startling even to mr Irwine, who had last seen him in the dim light of his small room and the neighbors from hayslope who were present and who told hetty sorrel's story by their firesides in their old age never forgot to say how much it moved them when adam Bede, poor fellow taller by the head than most of the people round him came into court and took his place by her side but hetty did not see him she was standing in the same position bartle massey had described her hands crossed over each other and her eyes fixed on them adam had not dared to look at her in the first moments but at last When the attention of the court was withdrawn by the proceedings, he turned his face toward her with a resolution not to shrink. Why did they say she was so changed? In the corpse we love, it is the likeness we see. It is the likeness which makes itself felt the more keenly, because someone else was and is not. There they were, the sweet face and neck, with the dark tendrils of hair, the long dark lashes, the rounded cheek and the pouting lips pale and thin yes but like hetty and only hetty others thought she looked as if some demon had cast a blighting glance upon her withered up the woman's soul in her and left only a hard despairing obstinacy but the mother's yearning that completest type of the life in another life which is the essence of real human love feels the presence of the cherished child even in the debased degraded man and to adam this pale hard-looking culprit was the hetty who had smiled at him in the garden under the apple-tree boughs she was that hetty's corpse which he had trembled to look at the first time and then was unwilling to turn away his eyes from but presently he heard something that compelled him to listen and made the sense of sight less absorbing. A woman was in the witness-box, a middle-aged woman, who spoke in a firm, distinct voice. She said, My name is Sarah Stone. I am a widow, and keep a small shop licensed to sell tobacco, snuff, and tea in Church Lane, Stoneton. The prisoner at the bar is the same young woman who came, looking ill and tired, with a basket on her arm and asking for a lodging at my house on Saturday evening, the 27th of February. She had taken the house for a public, because there was a figure against the door, and when I said I did not take in lodgers, the prisoner began to cry, and said she was too tired to go anywhere else, and she only wanted a bed for one night. At her prettiness, and her condition, and something respectable about her clothes and looks, and the trouble she seemed to be in, made me, as I couldn't find it in my heart, to send her away at once. I asked her to sit down, and gave her some tea, and asked her where she was going and where her friends were. She said she was going home to her friends. They were farming folks in a good way off, and she had a long journey that had cost her more money than she expected. So, as she'd hardly any money left in her pocket, and was afraid of going where it would cost her much, she had been obliged to sell most of the things out of her basket, but she'd thankfully give a shilling for a bed. I saw no reason why I shouldn't take the young woman in for the night. I had only one room, but there were two beds in it, and I told her she might stay with me. I thought she'd been led wrong and got into trouble, but if she was going to her friends, it would be a good work to keep her out of further harm. The witness then stated that in the night a child was born, and she identified the baby clothes then shown to her as those in which she had herself dressed the child. Those are the clothes. I made them myself, and had kept them by me ever since my last child was born. I took a deal of trouble both for the child and the mother. I couldn't help taking to the little thing and being anxious about it. I didn't send for a doctor, for there seemed no need i told the mother in the daytime she must tell me the name of her friends and where they lived and let me write to them she said by and by she would write herself but not to-day she would have no nay but she would get up and be dressed in spite of everything i could say she said she felt quite strong enough and it was wonderful what spirit she showed but i wasn't quite easy what i should do about her and toward evening i made my mind i'd go after meeting was over and speak to our minister about it i left the house about half past eight o'clock i didn't go out at the shop door but at the back door which opens into a narrow alley i've only got the ground floor of the house and the kitchen and bedroom both look into the alley i left the prisoner sitting up by the fire in the kitchen with the baby on her lap She hadn't cried or seemed low at all. I thought she had a strange look with her eyes, and she got a bit flushed toward evenings. I was afraid of the fever, and I thought I'd call and ask an acquaintance of mine, an experienced woman, to come back with me when I went out. It was a very dark night. I didn't fasten the door behind me. There was no lock. It was a latch with a bolt inside, and when there was nobody in the house, I always went out at the shop door but I thought there was no danger in leaving it unfastened that little while. I was longer gone than I meant to be, for I had to wait for the woman that came back with me. It was an hour and a half before we got back, and when we went in, the candle was standing burning just as I left it, but the prisoner and the baby were both gone. She'd taken her cloak and bonnet, but she'd left the basket and the things in it. I was dreadful frightened and angry with her for going. I didn't go to give information, because I'd no thought that she meant to do any harm, and I knew she had money in her pocket to buy her food and lodging. I didn't like to set the constable after her, for she'd a right to go for me if she liked. The effect of this evidence on Adam was electrical. It gave him a new force. Hetty could not be guilty of the crime. Her heart must have clung to her baby, else why should she have taken it with her? She might have left it behind. The little creature had died naturally, and then she had hidden it. Babies were so liable to death, and there might be the strongest suspicions without any proof of guilt. His mind was so occupied with imaginary arguments against such suspicions that he could not listen to the cross-examination by Hetty's counsel, who tried, without result, to elicit evidence that the prisoner had shown some movements of maternal affection towards the child. The whole time this witness was being examined, Hetty had stood as motionless as before. No words seemed to arrest her ear, but the sound of the next witness's voice touched a chord that was still sensitive. She gave a start and a frightened look towards him, but immediately turned away her head and looked down at her hands as before. This witness was a man, a rough peasant, he said. My name is John Olding. I am a laborer, and I live at Ted's Hole, two miles out of Stoneyton. A week last Monday, toward one o'clock in the afternoon, I was going toward Hetton Coppice, and about a quarter of a mile from the coppice I saw the prisoner, in a red cloak, sitting under a bit of a haystack not far off the stile. She got up when she saw me, and seemed as if she'd be walking on the other way. It was a regular road through the fields, and nothing very uncommon to see a young woman there. But I took notice of her, because she looked white and scared. I should have thought she was a beggar woman, only for her good clothes. I thought she looked a bit crazy, but it was no business of mine. I stood and looked back at her, but she went right on while she was in sight. I had to go to the other side of the compass to look after some stakes. There's a road right through it and bits of opening here and there, where the trees have been cut down, and some of them not carried away. I didn't go straight along the road, but turned off toward the middle, and took a shorter way towards the spot I wanted to get to. I hadn't got far out of the road into one of the open places before I heard a strange cry. I thought it didn't come from any animal I knew, but I wasn't for stopping to look about just then. But it went on, and seemed so strange to me in that place. I couldn't help stopping to look. I began to think I might make some money of it, if it was a new thing. But I had hard work to tell which way it came from, and for a good while I kept looking up at the boughs. And then I thought it came from the ground, and there was a lot of timber-choppings lying about, and loose pieces of turf, and a trunk or two, and I looked about among them but could find nothing, and at last the cry stopped. So I was for giving it up, and I went on about my business. But when I came back the same way, pretty nigh an hour after, I couldn't help laying down my stakes to have another look. And just as I was stooping and laying down the stakes, I saw something odd, round, and whitish, lying on the ground under a nut bush by the side of me. And I stooped down on hands and knees to pick it up, AND I SAW IT WAS A LITTLE BABY'S HAND. AT THESE WORDS A THRILL RAN THROUGH THE COURT. HETTY WAS VISIBLY TREMBLING. NOW, FOR THE FIRST TIME, SHE SEEMED TO BE LISTENING TO WHAT THE WITNESS SAID. THERE WAS A LOT OF TIMBER CHOPPINGS PUT TOGETHER JUST WHERE THE GROUND WENT HOLLOW, LIKE UNDER THE BUSH, AND THE HAND CAME OUT FROM AMONG THEM. BUT THERE WAS A HOLE LEFT IN ONE PLACE, AND I COULD SEE DOWN IT AND SEE THE CHILD'S HEAD. And i made haste and did away the turf and the choppings and took out the child it had got comfortable clothes on but its body was cold and i thought it must be dead i made haste back with it out of the woods and took it home to my wife she said it was dead and i'd better take it to the parish and tell the constable and i said i'll lay my life it's that young woman's child as i met going to the coppice but she seemed to be gone clean out of sight and I took the child on to Hetton Parish, and told the constable, and we went on to Justice Hardy, and then we went looking after the young woman till dark at night, and we went and gave information at Stoniton as they might stop her. And the next morning another constable came to me, to go with him to the spot where I found the child, and when we got there, there was the prisoner sitting against the bush where I found the child." and she cried out when she saw us. But she never offered to move. She'd got a big piece of bread on her lap. Adam had given a faint groan of despair while this witness was speaking. He had hidden his face on his arm, which rested on the boarding in front of him. It was the supreme moment of his suffering. Hetty was guilty, and he was silently calling to God for help. He heard no more of the evidence, and was unconscious when the case for the prosecution had closed unconscious that Mr. Irwine was in the witness-box, telling of Hetty's unblemished character in her own parish, and of the virtuous habits in which she had been brought up. This testimony could have no influence on the verdict, but it was given as part of the plea for mercy, which her own counsel would have made if he had been allowed to speak for her, a favour not granted to criminals in those stern times. At last Adam lifted up his head, for there was general movement round him the judge had addressed the jury and they were retiring the decisive moment was not far off adam felt a shuddering horror that would not let him look at hetty but she had long relapsed into her blank hard indifference all eyes were strained to look at her but she stood like a statue of dull despair there was a mingled rustling whispering and low buzzing throughout the court during this interval the desire to listen was suspended and everyone had some feeling or opinion to express in undertones. Adam sat, looking blankly before him, but he did not see the objects that were right in front of his eyes. The counsel and attorneys, talking with an air of cool business, and Mr. Irwine in low, earnest conversation with the judge, did not see Mr. Irwine sit down again in agitation and shake his head mournfully when somebody whispered to him, The inward action was too intense for Adam to take in outward objects, until some strong sensation roused him. It was not very long, hardly more than a quarter of an hour, before the knock which told that the jury had come to their decision, fell as a signal for silence on every ear. It is sublime, that sudden pause of a great multitude which tells that one soul moves in them all. Deeper and deeper the silence seemed to become— like the deepening night, while the jurymen's names were called over, and the prisoner was made to hold up her hand, and the jury were asked for their verdict. Guilty. It was the verdict everyone expected, but there was a sigh of disappointment from some hearts that it was followed by no recommendation to mercy. Still, the sympathy of the court was not with the prisoner. The unnaturalness of her crime stood out the more harshly, by the side of her hard immovability and obstinate silence. Even the verdict, to distant eyes, had not appeared to move her, but those who were near saw her trembling. The stillness was less intense, until the judge put on his black cap, and the chaplain his canonicals, was observed behind him. Then it deepened again, before the crier had time to command silence. If any sound were heard. It must have been the sound of beating hearts. The judge spoke. Hester Sorrel." The blood rushed to Hetty's face, and then fled back again, as she looked up at the judge, and kept her wide, open eyes fixed on him, as if fascinated by fear. Adam had not yet turned towards her. There was a deep horror, like a great gulf between them. But at the words, And then to be hanged by the neck till you're dead, A piercing shriek ran through the hall. It was Hetty's shriek. Adam started to his feet and stretched out his arms toward her. But the arms could not reach her. She had fallen down in a fainting fit and was carried out of court. End of chapter forty three. Recording by Belinda Brown of Indianapolis, Indiana.